welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Turn the Page, the official podcast of Syosset Public Library. I'm Jen, your co-host for today, and I'm here with the author of a really beautiful and thoughtful new book. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Yeah, of course. My name is Coco Picard. I'm so happy to be here, and um, thanks for having me. My, I'm a writer. I make comics. I also curate exhibitions, um, and my book is called The Healing Circle. It's coming out from Red Hen Press this summer, actually in a few weeks, which is very exciting. And it's about a mother who runs away from her family um, after getting a terminal diagnosis. She runs away to Germany in search of an ill-advised miracle cure. And when she's there, she sort of reflects on her life and befriends a aloe plant. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love this book and I particularly love the aloe plant. <laughs> um, before we get into the specifics of the book, I was wondering if I could ask you a little bit about um, your career and how it brought you to this book, because you've done a lot of really interesting things. Um, as you said, you've done some curating and you've done comics and art criticism. And I was wondering if you could just kind of take us through how you think your career led you to this book. Whoa, that's a great question. I mean, I'm not even sure that I know exactly. I've, it's been a pretty intuitive process. I've always been writing and I've always been writing fiction, but I think um, the public face of my fiction has really only just started to come out in a way, largely with this book, which I have been working on probably for about 10 years off and on. Um, but then I also have always been interested in the arts and I lived in Chicago for about 17 years where I was running an art space and small press called the Green Lantern. And um, I mean, maybe what I would say is that I, I sort of have the sense that my creative process is involves a lot of conversations with other people and other artists, visual artists, um, sculptors, performance artists, people who are in the um, making creatively, whatever their medium is. And I feel like a lot of times I have the seed of an idea um, that comes from something that I've been reading. And then I start um, talking to artists through like art, you know, writing about their work for for criticism or curating them into exhibitions. And then a lot of times um, the conversations we have in their studio informs my own writing in different ways. Um, so it's almost like an Ouroboros. And yeah, so I guess I feel like for the first 10 years, um, the arts administration part and the art criticism part was sort of more public facing and then now it's kind of exciting to feel this sort of turnover into more comics and um writing writing a book that's really cool and i was really um you know happy 
to see in particular that you had done comics um, because I've written comics too. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I haven't drawn any. Um, I have a, an artist uh, and very dear friend who I work with a lot, but um, it's really fun to see writers who write across different media. And I was wondering if you feel like your um, experience with comics has influenced your prose writing or vice versa? You know, I feel like... Um... It's interesting because I think that's it's really intuitive for me kind of at the beginning if if I move towards making a graphic narrative or um, just a fully text literary narrative. And I think a lot of times it has to do with how a thing um, wants to be told like I and I don't know, maybe this is something you relate to, too. It's like when you're making comics, there's so much less text and you're conveying so much more information visually mm -hmm. versus um, in a novel, for instance, even if you're um, describing visual occasions within the novel, it's nevertheless all text and all language. Um, so I think that initial impulse, whether it's visual or language-based really defines whether what form the final project will take, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's, you know, it's neat how a, a project can kind of um, let you know what it needs to be as opposed to the other way around. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love that, actually. I feel like it's a very, um, there's a kind of like, I don't know, um, intuitive cooperation or collaboration with the idea and mm -hmm. it leads you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, let's talk a little bit about the healing circle now. Not a little bit, a lot of it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> um, I was wondering, um, I'm always very careful with how I frame this question because I know that um, the question like, where do your ideas come from is, is impossible to answer and that authors don't like it and I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of more wondering, um, like what was the inception point for this book? Like, did it start with an image or with a character or a scene? Like, was there, was there something that kind of hooked you that was the beginning of this story? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... It's all fiction, but it was inspired by real life events. I, um, my own mother had dealt with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma basically from when I was about nine years old until she passed away when I was 23, I think. Um, and over the course of her disease, she um, was constantly looking into different types of new age practices and new age medicines. And I think that um, the character in this book, the mother in this book is, doesn't resemble my mother at all. Um, and I think part of that has to do with the impossibility, I would say about writing through grief kind of. Um, and I think that's also maybe related to why the, the book took so long to finish. Like, I think the initial inception of the book was to totally different. It was written from my perspective, um, or from a character that, you know, what, what should I say? Like, 
um, wildly resembled me, you know, (laughs) sort of like an avatar or something. Um, And I feel like um, since my own mom had moved, she like left our family. My my siblings and I were all quite old, but so she, she left to get a miracle cure. So those things are um, parallels. Mm -hmm. And I think I always wondered, I was there with her when she passed away. And I, I kind of wondered like, why, what it meant, I guess, to do that. What does it mean to, um, at the end of your life, decide to leave everything, you know, um, for the possibility of living longer Mm. and how much of that is, um, denial, how much of it has to, had to do with her, like wanting agency over her own health, which I think is a big question and how much of it had to do with, um, what do I want to say? Like, um, was it, was it a question of her facing her own death or was it a question of her, um, trying to deny it in some way? And I think, um, I couldn't write the book from my view, but there was some point where I was able to, um, and it took a long time and it was difficult. There was a certain point where I feel like I stripped away my, feelings I want to say about the situation and um kind of stripped away the mother character so that it became more of an abstract kind of equation and then I was like what if what happens if I strip this person down and send them on this journey and then I get to say like why did you do that and I don't even know I mean for me I don't think that I answered that question (laughs) for myself Um, but I think that that is the seed of the story. Mm, that's so interesting. And I think that that actually touches on one of the things that I thought this book does so well, which is that it it really portrays the way, I think, in which we often make decisions before we understand our reasons for them. And maybe we never understand, <laughs> you know, the reasons for things, um, but that they can just be sort of like, yeah, those grasps at agency, you know, or wanting to at least like express your autonomy over your own life in a way, because I feel like, you know, death is probably the thing that like ultimately takes our autonomy away from us in the extreme. And so there's this like impulse to sort of like hold on to it. You know, I thought that was like really like very thoughtfully and touchingly explored. Oh, thanks so much. I mean, I think it's true. Even I think um, in illness, like I think one of the things that's, that at least when I was um, watching my mom go through this, one of the things that I think was really difficult was how often she, because not with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at the time anyway, I don't, yeah, but it, she would go through these, like go through a remission for an extended period and then she would get sick again. And um, so I think there was regularly this time where, um, you know, doctors would appear because she wasn't feeling well and they would say, okay, you have to like dismantle your life and do this whole other thing. And I think that's like another situation where it's difficult to feel, um, to feel empowered, I would say. But then I also think part of the, I mean, at least, you know, part of how one finds health is through a sense of agency. And so you're constantly um, balancing those impulses. Like don't eat sugar. I mean, it's like a very basic one, but it's like, don't eat sugar. Here's your special diet. This is what's going to make you feel better. Um, 
but also you should go to the beach sometimes if you feel like it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's super interesting. Cause there is like, I did find the new age aspect of this really interesting. Cause I've always been like, you know, like I've attended like yoga studios on and off and I've like heard all about like the wonders and magic of essential oils. And like, <laughs> I, I sort of like, I have a deep distrust of a lot of that stuff, but also like as a, like a nineties alternative kid, like a lot of fondness for it. And I think that kind totally. of grew in this book too. Like new age culture is sort of like, it's very warm and cozy and inviting, but there is this like kind of dark insidious underbelly that's kind of about like exploitation and, you know, like, but you kind of, you deal with all of that here in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something that I was trying to do was to sort of, um, to not really, to basically make it complex. I mean, I think um, the, the, the industry of health, I think is very complex and you know health insurance is complex um new age cures are complex it's really complicated also the relationship between the marketplace and health whether it's traditional medicine or alternative medicine um i think and i don't know that i touch on this explicitly in the book but i also think that there's interesting questions about appropriating different traditions what are the politics for instance of um like, I feel like maybe there uh, is something interesting about books like Eat, Pray, Love, for instance, and their um, portrayal of like the cis white woman going, going east, right, to like full, find fulfillment. And um, I like, I think that the, the politics uh, and ethics around that are very interesting, especially how it maps onto a kind of like consumerist mentality or privilege. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's also this lingering question about what does it mean to live a fulfilled life and how do we do it and a healthy life and who has access to that and why. And I think that that's something that I tried to draw into this book in some way, even though I like, hopefully it's sort of part of the texture. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And it's a really like, um, honest and nuanced portrayal of it because, you know, it really made me reflect on like the, you know, the essential oils I mentioned before, <laughs> like, you know, that you have one side that's saying like, um, like them, they're saying like, oh, these are, you know, you can like cure cancer with essential oils or like deal with your uh, child's ADD or like, you know, this and that. And then the other side is like, no, this is all lies. And like, it's toxic and dangerous. And that's true too. And like, it's, but somewhere in the middle is probably where the truth lies because like, you know, lavender essential oil, like calms me down and helps me go to sleep. But like, would I make those more extreme claims? Like, no. And I think that like, it's, it's just like you refuse to either like demonize or valorize it like it's just very mm -hmm. real you know mm -hmm. yeah that's great I mm -hmm. hope so <laughs> um I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about um yeah the main character and where she's coming from where she came from um mm -hmm. you talked a little bit about her, like where the character had its origins but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about like how she functions in the story um I find it very interesting that she's really just referred to as mother. And I think that's, that's part and parcel of what you were talking about before. Um, but yeah, could you talk a little bit more about her? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that was also one of the things that I really love about writing for me is that once I 
am willing to, and sometimes it takes a while, but once I'm willing to um, sort of strip a, an idea away from like the, from my reality or um, this kind of, like, sometimes I feel like the reason that I immediately, like I'm drawn to write at first is that I want to convey something authentic. And then usually I feel like that um, desire to be true to something bogs me down. Um, but where I arrive once I let that impulse go somehow feels more true than where I was initially starting from. Mm -hmm. um, but so all of this is to say, um, the I feel like I discovered or I learned about the mother character as I wrote her. And um, one of the big pieces that kind of came together for me, it was, um, I had learned about this town in Argentina called La Cambrasita, and it was founded by German expats who sort of recreated um, like a German town. So it's almost like they grafted their traditions onto this place. And it was significant in, um, in and around World War II, both because there were Germans who stayed there who couldn't go back or didn't want to go back or they didn't want to fight. And then afterwards there, were, there was like a, another influx of the population of people who were leaving, um, leaving Germany. And I'd been reading a lot about uh, Clarice Lispector's biography at the time and became more and more interested about this idea of um, like where we think about where we're from essentially. And the question is personally interesting to me because I, uh, I was born in Tokyo and I grew up in Hong Kong and then my family, both my parents were originally from California, had um, like, I always identified California as home, but have really only lived there for, I want to say like six or seven years of my life. Mm. Um, so with this mother character who is, uh, her, she raised her family, I would say in California, but originally comes from this town in this town in Argentina and is born from two, um, German expats basically who left Berlin after the war. Mm. And her father is, or was a, um, I would say like a pretty sketchy dude. <laughs> Um, he was kind of a bureaucrat in the Nazi party mm. and he doesn't have a huge, um, what do I want to say? He doesn't have like a lot of page time, but I feel like he has like a lot of gravitational pull in the book for me. And I think that was another way, another big, um, source of inspiration for me was this, uh, was a Roberto Bolaño book, 2666. Mm. And this idea of how um, I would say like fascistic traditions or trauma kind of passes through generations and like reappears in a totally new context. Mm. That's super interesting. <laughs> and I think there's like a lot going on there too with, yes. um, <laughs> um, with uh, what do I want to say? You know, like how identity intersects with place and where you're from and where you're going and you know who gets to who gets to define their identity in terms of where they came from and who gets to do it in terms of where they ended up or chose to be you know mm -hmm. um 
there's just a lot of really interesting things going on with all that. And then with mother who has traveled for totally different reasons and sort of finds herself in this kind of like limbo in so many different ways, you know, there's a lot of really interesting things going on in this book too, with like just being in in between places and the book has a very like dreamlike tone and I noticed that it's also written in like the present tense with which gives it like a sort of immediacy but almost like a um like a almost dreamlikeness too because you're sort of watching these things happen without interacting um and I'm wondering like how did you kind of like how do you ride that line between reality and fantasy from for a character like mother and how do you how do you see that distinction and like how, where do you know how to blur it and where to keep it distinct, if that makes sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that was a big, um, I think that was a big question uh, that I was, I don't know, struggling with, but like constantly working on. And like, I feel like on the one hand, I I tried to take the sort of more fantastic elements seriously and so i so i think that helped me so for instance like thinking about how to the mother character's experience like one of the things she describes is how being in munich or outside of munich reminds her of this town that she grew up in and so i was thinking about how that uh, reverberation is interesting to me because on the one hand, she's never been to Germany before, but she has this, um, it's sort of like she's inside. She was, it's almost like she was born inside of a replication of, um, German culture, but then that replica, that replica is more true to her than, um, where she is in Munich. And so, um, how do I take that feeling seriously, I guess. Mm. Um, and, and then I feel like another part that for me is really important is how do you try and make the, what do I want to say? It's like, I, I guess I constantly thought about and think about how you make the reader feel welcome within the book. Mm. And I think that that's like another element where I relied on outside readers and friends often to help me find those lines because I feel like for instance if I went too far into um uh sort of fantastic or surreal mode that wasn't consistent then that would often be the point where the reader would get lost or kicked out or wouldn't feel um taken care of Mm. and So I think that that's kind of like another question that I think about a lot is like, how do you keep the rules of a, of a world consistent enough so that, um, you're not like, yeah, kicking somebody out of a narrative. Hmm. Yeah. I actually never really thought about this in these terms, you know, because usually when we talk about world building, we're talking about like fantasy or sci-fi, but like you do world building in in like literary fiction too like you have to build a world even if it looks a lot like this one you know you have to make the place real for people and as you were speaking it occurred to me that like not only is mother sort of like unmoored 
in place, like sort of being in all these places at once and sort of being nowhere at once, but she's also is like unmoored in time mm-hmm. because she's existing in the present going through, uh, you know, these treatments and being in Munich, but also is sort of like reliving, um, like st- stepping in and out of memories, you know, and so that's really also part of her sort of like this, this, yeah, limbo that she finds herself in. Yeah, totally. And so that was like, um, that's like a, that was a structural question that I had been thinking through really early on. And I mean, part of that comes from this idea that, um, like, I'm interested in how time, like time through memory happens, it feels to me like it happens often simultaneously, like, there is this um, expectation of narrative that it's linear and it goes from A to B, but then I feel like actually in lived experience and often in novels, there is all these like interruptions or you have like time times, multiple time times that happen simultaneously. Um, and so initially the book was totally a chrono- chronological. And that was like another place where I found that I wasn't giving the reader enough footing. Um, And one of the things that I realized is that if I keep the fictive, even though the whole book is in the present tense, if I keep the fictive present, which is like the frame story of the mother character in a hospital bed, um, looking out the window and, um, you know, as her health is failing. And I feel like as long as that is chronological or linear, then I had a lot more room to interrupt that with these other scenes that kind of happen at different stages in her life. Definitely. So I guess before we wrap up, I'd like to talk about um, Madame Blavatsky (laughs) and where she comes from, this aloe plant that mother sort of develops a a relationship with. Can you talk a little bit about uh, where the plant came from and how you sort of conceived her role in all this? Yeah, I mean, so the mother character ends up being all alone in this hospital. She's talking on the phone with her children. Um, She's watching the news. She also interacts with um, different doctors and a lawyer at one point. but she's pretty isolated, except there happens to be this plant inside of the, um, on, in her hospital room. And I think I, like, I, I guess I like the way that plants appear in these spaces and we don't typically pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I was thinking about how, like, what would it mean for her to begin to have a relationship, like a, a relationship with a plant and a relationship that's like, um, it's like kind of serious, I think, even though there's some way where I f- like the, I feel like the plant speaks to her, but I think that there's some, hopefully some ambiguity as to whether or not the plant is actually speaking to her or whether or not um, she is kind of imagining it. And I think that that's also hopefully going back to this liminal space that you were talking about. Um, There's some way where she can't move. She is like less and less able to um, do the things that we imagine ourselves capable of often. And so I feel like as, as that happens, she's, I think, becoming more and more capable of paying attention to other types of beings and other ways of being. 
um, which I really enjoyed. And then also, um, like I enjoyed writing that process, actually, I feel like I learned a lot. And yeah. it was exciting to, um, like, I, I feel like I had learned about a little bit about um, esoteric, esoteric thought over the course of writing about this. And like Madame Blavatsky is really, she founded the Theosophical Society, also had this really incredible life where she, um, you know, left Ukraine, um, immigrated to um, France, I think first, and then New York and was really involved in all of these, um, um, yeah, sort of like early new age discussions that also I think, I think she was one of the first people or an early person to start incorporating Eastern thought into um, the Western, the West, and was also, anyway, there's all these things. She's like a really amazing person. And so for me, it also just seemed very funny to imagine that like this incredible personality happened to show up inside of like the body of a plant all of a sudden. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And I, I love, um, you know, the way that bringing in a reference to a historical figure can kind of like just, you know, I think, as you said before, just sort of like add to the texture of a story because you bring in all these associations. And I think that, you know, the plant really actually speaks to another important thing, which is that like, you know, parts of the story are like about deep isolation, too, but like how you know, sometimes we need a dialogue in order to understand ourselves or know ourselves and that we can invent that dialogue partner if we have to, you know, like it's sort of like a really nice example of like human resilience in a, in a, in a way. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, one of my, I have a, um, I was part of this amazing fellowship at um, Stony Brook and one of my mentors there was joking about how the the aloe plant is a little bit like, and I can't remember what the name of the Tom Hanks movie is, but it's a Tom Hanks movie where he's on an island with a football. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of great. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, but I, actually, I thought of that too. I think that's uh, Wilson, Wilson from Castaway, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's great. Oh my gosh. Well, um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to me and our listeners today. Um, I really enjoyed this book. I thought it was like really beautiful and touching and like devastating, but also really funny and heartwarming too. It just like, it does so much and it does it all very well. So thank you for writing it. <laughs> so much. And thanks for having me. It's oh, really yeah. nice to talk about all this stuff with you. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Listeners, um, you can check out the healing circle, um, in a independent bookstore or library near you as of August 16th. I think that's just a couple days before this episode releases. So by the time you're listening, you can get this book. Uh, this has been Jen in conversation with Coco Picard, and it is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.